And what are some of the things that are gone over in those basic principles? The Trinity, yes. The Scripture, right? God's decree in chapter 3 that He decrees everything that comes to pass and how He executes that decree. Okay, so God has chosen in His own counsel of His own will what would take place. How does that happen? It takes place through chapter 4, creation, and chapter 5, providence. That is an analogy of a man building a house, creation, and then maintaining that house, providence. Okay, that's how God does everything in this world. And here we come to of sin, of the fall, I'll just read it, of the fall of sin and of the punishment thereof. Okay? And part of what we might ask is, how does this fit into the, the basic principles that we've been talking about? And I just ask you that. How does sin and the fall of man and the punishment that comes from the fall of man, how does that fit into the basic principles of Christianity? Yes? Do we need a Savior? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Because if we consider in every culture, no matter who, and I would say every individual in this world has a concept and a theology, if we want to use that loosely, of what sin is. Okay? Everybody believes to some degree or another that men are not good or as good as they can be. Now, some might say, well, it's only those type of people that aren't good. Right? But they recognize that there's a problem in the world, right? And that sin is that problem. Okay? And this is setting us up. It's a basic principle of human thought and human life and a problem that all human beings have, but it's setting us up for chapter 7 through 20, which is God's covenant. That is how God chose to save sinners from themselves and from the fall. Okay? This is a basic concept. And the thing that we should notice here. We're just going to go through paragraph 1 today, and we're going to try to go through paragraphs 2 through 5 next week. And things we're going to be considering are important and difficult for us to understand, but again, as mysteries that the Bible talks about, such as original sin. How does sin transmit itself from one generation to the next? Okay. What is the sin that exists within believers' heart? We're going to consider these things, and we're going to consider what sin is and to define it somewhat precisely next week. But today, I want us to notice that paragraph one is about the history and the fact of the fall. Okay? The history and fact of the fall. I'm going to read it, and I want us to just talk a little bit about why history is important. This is what paragraph one says. And notice that first word. It's very important for, for our interpretation of this. Although God, although God created man upright and perfect, and gave him a righteous law which had been unto life if he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, and then by her seducing Adam who without any compulsion, notice that, without any compulsion on God's part, did willfully transgress the law of their, 
and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to His own glory. Okay? So we see how this text fits in with the previous chapters that we've looked at, especially God's decree, right? Well, we could say the Trinity itself, right? We see the Scripture, the Trinity, God's decree, all wound up in this text that God is not responsible for the sin that, God, that man did, but He ordered it. He allowed it. He permitted it for God's own glory, which is the chief and the best good that could ever happen. Not my salvation, but God's glory is the chief thing. But going back, the history of this event is important. Okay, Our confession nor does any of the rest of the Scripture treat the events of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and especially even Genesis chapters 1 through 11, as a fiction, okay? Or a mere story that was written so that we would learn from it. And you might say, why would I say that? Well, if any of you are going to go to college or have been to college or are going to read any commentaries that are outside the realm of Reformed Christianity, you're going to encounter some of these arguments that... Genesis 1 through 3 is just poetry, right? And the fall even isn't meant to describe a literal Adam who was the first man, a literal Eve who was the first woman, our first parents, who literally fell into sin, but it's, it's merely meant to show the human condition in a poetic kind of way, okay? But there's an immense problem with that. What, what, what is the problem with that. Christ is, that's, th- th- this is the primary problem. Okay, and we'll, we'll get to that. The rest of the Bible does not talk about this text as if it's poetry, but as if it actually happened. Okay? Can we think of any examples of that? Oh. Paul quotes Genesis for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2 for marriage, right? In a a way that God really did this, right? God created man and and woman and gave them marriage as an institution. Let's just, a couple more examples. Brother. Amen. Amen. And the Bible talks about Adam in a couple of different places, right? We talk about the first and the second Adam, which makes no sense if there was not a first Adam, okay? Can we think of anything else? Just one more. Here, brother. Yeah. Yeah, because they were created second, basically, right? And other reasons, but we're not here to get into that necessarily right now. Okay, So we have to realize that the history is important. And overall, looking at history in Christianity, our religion okay, is different than most religions of the world because most religions don't depend on a historical fact happening. Okay? They might depend on timeless truths, right? philosophy, ways that we can be moral in this life, that Confucius could die and pass away and could never existed. But the teachings of Confucius... right? Or hold Confucianism together. Buddha, likewise. Buddha doesn't necessarily have to exist or be historical. But his teachings are what's timeless. Christianity cannot be that way. It depends on real events that took place in a real world. 
The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as Francis Schaeffer said, you could get a splinter from the cross. What he means is it was real. Okay, The fall of Adam and Eve is the same. It is real, actual, happening in history. Okay, Because, as Joey said, we have a second Adam. Okay, And turn with me to two passages, because this is really important for us to consider in the historicity, and more than the historicity, because we're going to be talking about the covenant of works in our brief time here today as well. How Adam fell, in some way, dictates how we are to be saved in Jesus Christ. Okay, That where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Okay, So we have to see a parallel here. So Romans chapter 5 talks about Adam. Okay, And I'm going to read two somewhat longish passages. Just please stay with me. I know it's early. Verse 12. This is a prime text. Okay. Notice the historicity, first of all. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we're going to talk about this next week, but notice the language that's used there. All sinned. That is, in Adam's transgression, you and I sinned, okay? For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Notice, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the second passage is in 1 Corinthians, smattered about chapter 15. And I want you to keep these passages in the back of your mind. We're not going to necessarily go through them extensively, but they're going to be important for what we talk about. So that's why I'm reading them up front here. In verse 20. But in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, notice, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then those who at his coming. Okay, and then if you'll scan with me over to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That is a body controlled completely by the Holy Spirit, I believe. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life or became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Okay? But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we are born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Those are great gospel truths, aren't they? Okay, And they're very applicable as we talk about the fall of man. Because everything that we read here, we're going to see almost the photo negative in Jesus Christ. Okay, We see the gospel and the fall in this way. Okay, But as we go, I want us to notice first the setting of the fall in the confession. Okay? The setting of the fall. And I told you that although is really important. What, how does although function in this paragraph? What is, it meant, what is that meant to tell us? Joe, did you have your hand up? That's right. That's right. So it says, although God put Adam in a perfect setting, that's what it's saying. God didn't tempt Adam to fall, right? He put him in a perfect setting. That the law that he was given, he should have been able to perform. God didn't put any barriers in his way for that to happen. Okay? So, notice with me. Some of these gracious and good settings that God placed Adam in. Okay? What's the first one? God created man upright and perfect. Okay? God created man upright and perfect. Part of the problem with not seeing a historical Adam, okay, is that when we consider the problem of sin, liberal scholars have to conclude that we didn't become sinners, but this is just part of the human condition, that humans, what it means to be human is to be a sinner, right? He's not talking about the perspective after the fall, but humanity in general means to be a sinner. But Reformed theology and biblical theology, sin is contrary to humanity. Sin is not what humans should be. In fact, it makes us less human rather than more human. Okay? Jesus Christ was the perfect man without sin. And Adam, the first Adam, was likewise a sinless, perfect son of God. Okay? He's a sinless, perfect son of God. God created man, Adam and Eve, upright and perfect. That is, not only did they not have original sin, that is, the corruption of nature from which all of our actual sins flow out of, okay? But they actually had original righteousness. What do I mean by that? That their hearts were not created a blank slate, okay? That they had no affection toward good or evil, and they just walked around the world and became good or became evil. Right, There's a video game that uh, you have like karma points, which is terrible theology, but you can like kind of choose, your, you're kind of neutral in the world, and then you can choose bad actions or good actions, and you kind of go along that line. Adam and Eve aren't like that. They were created 
good and perfect. They were inclined to righteousness. Adam, on the day he was created, Eve, the day that they were created, they loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they loved them, themselves, their neighbor, there are only two in the world at that time, as themselves. Okay? They were good and upright. Where do we see that in Scripture? Brother. That's exactly right. Ecclesiastes 7.21 is the, the clearest text that we have. Ecclesiastes 7.21. And these things are just important for us to memorize if we can. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 21. And I'm only going to read it. I'd have Joe read it. I'm only going to read it because of the microphone's sake. Ecclesiastes 7.21. 29. Is what I have. Um, See, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Notice the point of Ecclesiastes. This isn't God's fault. God didn't make man sinful, and then they went according to their own nature. God made man upright, and they sought out their own ways and their own schemes. Okay? So, the first setting that we have is that man was created, as Sam Waldron said, in integrity. Okay? God created man upright and perfect, without sin. Okay? What, what's the second condition that God gave him? The, the second setting that shows it was man's sinfulness and not God's malevolence or righteous law. Yeah. And so this is important. He created him upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law. Okay? And if you put those two things together, they should go together very well, shouldn't they? A perfect and an upright man and a righteous law to obey, these are wonderful things. Even David, in his fallen state, renewed by the Holy Spirit, could say, I love thy law. And in it I meditate day and night. And God gave Adam a righteous law to keep. Okay. Now, what is that righteous law? It's not a trick question. No, but we're going to get there. Yeah. Eating of the tree. Right. Eating of the tree. In Genesis chapter 2, we we read of this, okay? And I want you to notice, some would say that I'm going to use the language covenant of works, okay? That's opposed to a covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. That is, do this and you will live as a covenant of works, okay? That even though that language is not in the text, okay, Every idea of that is in the text. So, look with me. In verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. And to further emphasize that, in verse 9, it says, And the, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight of food, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? So, God created man up, upright, and he gave him a righteous law. Okay? Now, as we consider that, We know that Adam broke that covenant by eating of the tree. 
okay? But we have to understand that Adam did more than eat of the tree. His sinfulness is comprehended in a greater way than just eating the fruit of the tree, okay? Because in that law, that one law that was given, it was a symbol and a type of breaking all of God's commandments, okay? Breaking of all of God's commandments. Because if we would just do an intellectual thought experiment here, would it have been okay, right, and just for Adam to have murdered his wife on the first day? We'd say, absolutely not. We're about to steal from his neighbor if neighbors existed to him at that time. No, right? But to commit adultery, we'd say, no, absolutely not. What about to worship another god? We'd say, no, that, that can't be true, right? We, we know that Adam, and we know from other passages in Scripture, had the law of God written on his heart. That is the moral law of God. Where do we see that taught in Scripture? That man himself, by nature, has God's moral law written on his heart. Romans is really correct. So let's go to Romans. Romans, just a couple passages. And we can go many places in Scripture for this. Uh, I believe it's one of the clearest teachings in Scripture. Romans chapter 1. Um, I want us to notice first in Romans, we're just going to go through the book a little bit to see this idea of the law of God written on man's heart. Notice in verse 32 that they know the punishment that is deserved. Romans chapter 1 is talking about pagans. And it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, That written on man's heart naturally... And I'm including that, Adam and Eve, is the idea that transgression of God's law deserves death. Okay? Romans chapter 2. Notice, as Paul kind of speaks in hypothetical language, he says something that's very striking and important to what we're talking about today. Notice, in, uh, in verse, I'm just trying to think where to start. We'll just go in verse 12. Okay? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they, have a, uh, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show, notice, that the, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that is Gentiles that do not have the Ten Commandments in front of them in Scripture, right? That have never encountered it, have the righteous law of God written on their hearts, okay? And we can go many other places in Scripture. Turn to chapter 3. And I just want you to think through the implications of this. In verse 19, Paul says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And so we might think, in our minds, Jews. That's not where he goes, is it? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world might become accountable to God. Okay? And we can go many other places than this. But Adam had a righteous law given to him that was a symbol in some 
Puritan writers would say, a sacrament of the keeping of the whole law. That when he took the, of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, he broke every law in its place. And it was a symbol that he broke every law in his place. Okay? Now, man, and I'll just briefly say this, man is still under this covenant of works. Every man naturally born into this world is born under the law, okay? Born under the law. That is born under the covenant that you do this and you will live, okay? That we cannot keep. It's important for us to get to the gospel, so I'm going to hasten along a little bit. Notice, yet he did not abide long in this honor. Okay? And there's debate on how long he, he abode in this honor. How long did Adam live on the earth? And we're not told how long, but I think that there's a couple of things that w- would maybe help us consider he didn't live very long before this happened. And one of the things to just consider, Adam and Eve, and this is, don't throw tomatoes at me or anything like that, okay? I just want you to think about it. I'm not saying this is true, but I think it's an important thought. How long Adam abode in his state of innocency? What was a command given to Adam and Eve except for the tree? What other command were they given clearly in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply, right? So just think with me. You're in a sinless world that doesn't have the curse. Part of that is, is problems childbearing, Okay? Man is created, fully formed as as a man. His wife is created. They are married. They have a command to be fruitful and multiply. In a sinless world, you would think that Eve might get pregnant fairly easily. But it's only after the fall that she gets pregnant. So I I would at least deduce that I don't think that she was, they were on earth for 10 months before they fell. And some would say that they weren't on earth a day. That they never got to the seventh day that God sanctified and hallowed to, to rest with him in his work. And they never even got to partake of the tree of life. Because it said, guard the path so that he doesn't eat of the tree of life. Or else he'll live forever. Okay? So, that's, it's conjecture to some point. But he didn't, the point is, he did not abide long in this honor. Right? He did not abide long in this honor. So, that's the setting of the fall. And... We're to see here that God put Adam in a setting and a context, okay, where these things could have gone on and Adam could have attained glory, okay, quickly. The description of the fall. We have Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, and then Eve, being seduced, seduced Adam. To eating the fruit. Now, it's important to see this. It's not Eve taking the fruit and eating it that had mankind fall into sin. Okay? The question is why? Why is that? Why is Adam looked at, even though he ate the fruit second, why is he looked at as the one who caused death to enter the world? That's right. He was the head. And this is where we we think about Christ as the second Adam. Christ, the... The reformers would say that he was a public person. He wasn't just a private individual. He represented the whole of humanity in what he did in a way that Eve did not. Okay, And so it is him eating that caused death to come. But I want us to notice here briefly that Satan used the subtlety of the serpent. Okay, That Satan did not in his spiritual form 
come to Adam and Eve. But he used the form of a subtle creature. Okay? And the reason I want to point that out today is that Satan still does that. That Satan does not come to us, uh, you know, in, in red pajamas with a pitchfork and horns, right? And tempt us. He uses the subtlety of, of good-sounding false teachers. I, I want us to see that. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As a, as a warning to us here that the, the historical fact of the fall and Satan using the subtlety of the serpent, Satan still does that to this day. Notice in verses 1 through 3, Paul defending his apostleship. I wish you would bear with me. In a little foolishness, do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Notice, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, his subtlety, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, right? So the danger is that the devil uses subtle instruments to proclaim his gospel just as he did with Eve, right? And he says the danger of it is you're going to put up with even a different gospel, okay, if you're not careful. Now, uh, I just want to read verse 13 as well. For such men are false apostles, Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Okay, so Satan seduced Eve. Eve seduced her husband, uh, perhaps unwillingly to some degree, much like false prophets operate today, right? They're deceived and they deceive, okay? And notice, he did, Adam, willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed it to his own glory. God could have come down and cut the serpent in half in that minute. But God designed for a better thing to be worked even through the fall of man. Okay, He designed that his glory would be known especially through the salvation of the second Adam. That a man would come into this world, a second sinless son of God would come into this world, fully God and fully man, and reverse the curse that was given. But how Jesus reverses the curse, again, is kind of a mere opposite of the way that Adam fell. And if we just think through this passage again, okay? Although God put man in this perfect setting and he still fell, Christ came into a sinful and sin-cursed world and still saved us. Just as Adam willfully fell, Christ willingly succeeded in doing the will of the Father. God made Christ upright and perfect. And like Adam, he gave him a righteous law. The whole law of God written on his heart. 
But there is one event and one thing that symbolized Christ's keeping of the whole law. That's another tree and the resurrection from the dead. Right? Christ willingly took our sin upon Himself and the condemnation that all men had from eating that first tree. And He suffered on another tree that we would come to God through Him. Christ was born under the covenant of works. Just like we are. Right? That's what it means in Galatians chapter 4 that Christ was born under the law. doesn't mean that He was born with moral duties because everybody's born with moral duties. He was born under the covenant of works. And that's what it means, by the way, when it says that we're free, we're not under the law, okay? It doesn't mean that we have no moral duties to keep, okay? It means that we're not under the covenant of works. It doesn't threaten death and punishment to us any longer in Christ, okay? So, Christ kept the law, and He long abode in this honor, okay? Because He fulfilled it. He entered the glory of God and the rest of God that God and creation entered into on the seventh day. Christ entered into that same rest. As God rested on the seventh day from the works of creation, Christ entered into the rest of redemption. That all His works are done and completed. Okay? So, do we have any questions or thoughts about this passage? I, no thoughts, no questions about the fall, how long they abode in this honor, anything. So, yeah, go ahead. I, I do have a question yeah. That are sinful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's true. Okay. So there, there was a, and I, we'll talk about this next week. I don't want to call sin a thing because I don't think it is a proper thing, ontologically speaking. But there was sinful act by Satan before the fruit was eaten. I mean, there's no doubt about that, right? So when the Bible says that sin entered the world, okay, and death through sin, it's talking primarily about the human race. Okay? And that the problem that we have of being born with original sin and corruptness in our heart, right? Our nature being transformed from original righteousness to original sin and depravity, that entered the world through one man. Okay? Because Adam's partaking of the fruit didn't cause Satan to sin, right? It didn't, it, sin didn't enter the created order through that, right? It's talking about a specific application of that, I believe, right? It's talking about our particular condition and state and mankind born after the fall. Sin entered in through one man. Right? Oh, ontological. So, it just means being. Being. So, uh, yes. It just means existence or being. Yeah, no. I'm, but forgive me for not explaining that. Any other questions? Yeah. Right, because yeah. God says 
touch it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's not what God said to her. We're not told. We're not told. It could have been Eve's own fearfulness of, uh, of coming near the tree, and it could have been somewhat of a holy impulse, right? Because, uh, likewise, we, we know that money is not the root of all evil, but what is? The, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And so we can have kind of a holy impulse, a, a good impulse in our heart to pray with Proverbs chapter 30 that God give me neither poverty nor riches, Right? Do we recognize the temptation and say, I don't want to, I don't really want to get near the temptation? Um, but it does seem like Eve puts the words in God's mouth. So it, that's a long way of saying, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Brother. Yeah. Yes. It didn't become a part of human reality and experience, right? That we are sinners, that we are lawbreakers, we are covenant breakers until that moment. Yes. And, and this is mister, mysterious in ways we don't understand, but I think we can say some things about it that are true. Joe. <laughs> I can just tell you, you don't even have to raise your hand. I just see your eyes. What's up? No, please. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. Well, and we, we see that Satan in different passages of Scripture has access to heaven, to, yeah, Job, to God. And, and perhaps even in, in uh, Luke, where Christ says of Peter, Satan has asked for you. He's, he's asked for you, and I, I don't know who else he would ask but God, that he might have you, that he might sift you as wheat. So, I don't know. I, that's the, <laughs> I don't know. But they're good things to think about. But again... God is pleased to reveal to us the things that we must know, right? We don't have to, and I know we know this, I'm not accusing us, but we don't have to untie every knot in this, okay? Any other questions or thoughts about the fall of man? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you, and we thank you for the second Adam, God who in every way came into this world that was sin-cursed. He came in poverty, Lord. He came uh, with sinful parents. He came and chose sinful men to follow Him. Um, God, He preached a a gospel and men killed Him and put Him on a tree. But God, we praise You that His obedience never faltered or failed. Even where our first parents faltered and failed in a perfect environment, God. With a perfect righteous law. And we, we ask You today that we would put our hope not in the first Adam. That we would not put our hope in our obedience to the first law that was given to them. 
God, that we would just have another shot and we would do it, but that we would look to Christ and that he's done it all for us and that we would merely rest in him. Lord, help us to do that today. In Christ's name, amen.